Burn rate. Asset location. Inventory turnover. Customer acquisition cost. Spiffy pop. Each of these represents intermediate level terms that most serious, foolish investors, capital F, know, and most people who are not serious investors do not know. This week, we bring you the latest installment of our Gotta Know the Lingo series, one part teaching and, yeah, why not one part quiz show? I'm welcoming back three Motley Fool advisors and analysts to help teach me and you, the rest of us, some new terms, terms like the ones I led off with. Some simple, some more advanced, all terms we think you need to know. Drawn from investing in business, understanding these terms and the concepts behind them will enable you to become smarter about the game of investing. Smarter, which in my experience leads to happier and richer over time. Or maybe you already know these terms, in which case, I've got a scoring system. You can score yourself along with us this week. Six new terms, five of us to sort through them, me, my three analysts, and you. You ready? Only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. It's Gotta Know the Lingo, Volume 4. It's amazing to me that the last episode in this series was more than five years ago. I really enjoy and have enjoyed this series, but it's been five long years since we revisited Gotta Know the Lingo. Again, the purpose of the series is to look at some of the terms that you might hear about and not always fully understand from business, accounting, investing, sometimes technology as well. So, some new oncoming terms to get you thinking about the language of investing, business, and yeah, sometimes life to get you smarter about these concepts. The last time we did this was February 21st, 2018, and somewhat ironically, this was not planned. The week before that podcast, five years ago, I had just interviewed Kevin Kelly, the co-founder of Wired, and indeed, that's exactly what happened on this podcast last week. I hope you had at least half as good a time as I did listening to and learning from Kevin last week, because if you did, that means you had a wonderful hour and a half or so, a much longer podcast than usual, but that one still feels a little too short to me. What an engaging, forward-thinking conversation with an engaging, forward-thinking person and friend of the fool. A delight to be with Kevin last week, and yes, five years ago, this time, Right after I had Kevin Kelly talk about the inevitable, we did Gotta Know the Lingo, Volume 3. So, we're about to do Volume 4. I'm going to be welcoming on Bill Barker, Jason Moser, and Tom King to share three simple terms and three advanced terms. And I'll talk about the scoring system for that in just a second. But before we start, I want to mention what happens next week. It's my birthday next week, and your annual birthday present to me, this has happened most every year, the last several years, is that you let me know what you've learned from me over the last year, or if you're a longer-term listener, maybe what you've learned from me over the longer term. What have you learned from David Gardner? 2023 edition, our email address is rbi at fool.com, and you can tweet us at rbi podcast on Twitter. Again, if you have a little extra time this week and you want to celebrate my birthday with me, 
drop me a story. Drop me a few lines, a few paragraphs, if you like, rbi at fool.com. I will turn around and share back the ones that feel most apt, the most beautifully written, most inspiring on next week's show. And thank you in advance. You know, in our family, we do tend to make Christmas and birthday wish lists. And so I guess that's what I'm doing with you next week, except I just have one wish list item. I'm asking you, what have you learned from me? rbi at fool.com. All right, now on to Gotta Know the Lingo, Volume 4. I mentioned at the top, we have a scoring system. Now we're trying this one out. Is it there? You'll have to let us know. Are we all the way there? Is this going to be how it always is going forward? We'll see. Here's the scoring system this week. As we introduce each term and illustrate it for you, at the end, I'll ask you quietly to think, did I learn anything from these fools? If you feel like you didn't learn anything and your time was... Your five minutes or so were wasted by that term. The score would be zero because you learned zero and we were zeros. And so zero. If on the other hand, you thought that was helpful. Maybe I didn't know that term or, hey, I knew the term, but they made me laugh. Plus one. If as Bill Barker or Jason Moser or Tom King presented his term with his illustration, you found yourself delighted, not just by the quality of the learning, but maybe you got to smile along with it. If you really enjoyed, give it a plus two. And yeah, you can definitely share your score of this week's episode on social media or just email us rbi at fool.com. We're trying out this scoring system this week. We're not saying we have it, but maybe we do. All right. Well, gentlemen, and it is all guys this week, let's start our engines. Bill Barker, Jason Moser, and Tom King are here to teach us six terms, one simple and one more advanced. I want to turn first to you, Bill. Welcome. How you doing? I'm well. Thanks for having me. So, Bill, in recent years, you've been working in Motley Fool Asset Management. That is right. The last 14 years, I guess. So Yeah. Uh, so, recent years, like more than a decade. <laughs> uh, I, when I started working for asset management, uh, George Bush was president. <laughs> And you're not joking. No, I'm not. <laughs> which one? <laughs> the good it's news. Too, too long ago to remember which one. The good news for me, Bill, is that I've still gotten to enjoy you on other Motley Fool podcasts and occasionally might see you um, outside the offices. There's a Chinese wall that's always been built between asset management uh, and those who manage funds and our publishing business. But I think you've recently made a transition. I have. I'm, I'm back uh, on the publishing side where I started and uh, loved it back in the day. And it's been a long time. It's changed a lot. And uh, but uh, I think uh, it's, it's still a great place. Thank you, Bill. And it's a delight. It makes it easier to have you on this podcast and our podcast. So welcome back. Jason Moser, how are you doing? Yes, sir. Doing very well. Thank you for having me. What are you working on these days, Jason? Well, I am... Sp- Splitting time between the augmented reality and beyond service and the next-gen super cycle service, which is focused on the, the 5G sort of wave that we're in the middle of, of, of watching play out. And then um, when I'm not doing that, I'm contributing my time to, to Motley Fool Money as I can. And Jason, you joined me. I think it was just last month we reviewed a five-stock sampler together. It's good to see you again. You have been making a point to be in our office more often than not. I think part of the reason I thought to have you three on the show this week is because I see you around Full HQ. Now, I'm not around all the time myself. I'm not saying you are, but it's a delight to be back together, and we are here live in Motley Fool Studios. And so, Jason, thank you for for leaning in in every way, but especially for our members. And Tom King, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, David. Good to be here. 
Tom, if you were to characterize the pandemic in a few sentences that you had no opportunity to plan or really think through, how would you describe your experience over the last few years? Weird. (laughs) (laughs) Strange behavior. I never thought that uh, the thing that we'd run out of in the dire world scenario would be toilet paper. I didn't see that one coming. Those were early days. I remember those days. Yeah. Well, and I I think, Tom, you took at one point you decided to just hive off. You went west, young man. Am I right? I was, yes. I spent a few weeks in, um, in Oregon. I still have yet to get to Portland, but I think part of the pleasure, and there have been some pleasures, admittedly, I think, obviously we can think about the hard times, but there's been more agency and autonomy on the part of a lot of people, more license to try out things and get out there as long as we were keeping safe. And so, Tom, I congratulate you on seeing a little bit more of America. You are originally from South Africa. Can you remind me where in South Africa? Uh, From the Eastern Cape, southeastern part of the country. Excellent. It's great to see you again, Tom. Thank you for joining in this week. All right, so we've got three simple terms. We're going to go around the table with these and then three more advanced terms. Don't forget our critical scoring system, zero, one, or two. I'll remind you, dear listener, in a sec. But let me turn to you first, Bill, and ask you, what is term number one for this week's edition of Gotta Know the Lingo? The first term is share buyback. Share buyback. So, Bill, why did this come to mind? One of the things we try to do on this show is we try to introduce something that's relevant, maybe timely, but helpful, especially at this simpler level with this first round, terms that we think investors should know. Well, I wanted to keep this very simple for the simple part of the uh, the show. Uh, and the definition couldn't be more simple. A share buy- buyback is a transaction whereby a share buys back its own shares from the marketplace. And... It came to mind because it's constantly in the news and it's constantly important for investors. I'll give you a couple uh, recent examples. Please. Warren Buffett of uh, the Berkshire Hathaway uh, annual shareholders meeting uh, was just uh, last weekend. And he was in the news for his uh, shareholder letter uh, where he took a rather, rather direct shot at the politicians who have come out against share buybacks as being, uh, I think, financially illiterate, or I can't remember the exact term, but it was basically that, uh, because it's uh, uh, something that uh, Berkshire Hathaway has done, and uh, there's more to a share buyback than simply trying to uh, make CEOs richer, which is, I think, one of the politicians' uh, attacks. Um, a couple other things that have been in the news, Bed Bath & Beyond now in bankruptcy. Uh, one of the reasons was because they had spent so much money buying back shares Ouch! rather than all of the other things they could have done with the money that it ended up they needed uh, once uh, business went the wrong way. And they didn't have that cash because they'd been buying back shares for about a decade. I think they'd reduced their share count by about two-thirds over the previous decade. Probably a lot of people thought that was uh, a good thing and that shareholders were going to be rewarded uh, by the company buying back shares. Company constantly saying, well, our shares are undervalued. The market doesn't understand. This is a bargain. We can use the money, buy back shares. Well, at the end, there was no money and no company. So, Bill, companies rack up, just like individuals who make money through our salary, we rack up income, we we store it, we try to save it, store it away, put it in the bank. 
Those end up on balance sheets as cash positions, short-term investments, et cetera. And companies, out of their own cash flow or off their balance sheet, can use that money, as you're pointing out, just to buy back their own shares. That retires the shares. That effectively widens the pie slices of every one of us who keeps holding our own position, right? Because if shares are retired, and all of a sudden there are fewer shares, and I still have my 10, then the earnings per share of the company bill, the price per share of the company, all of these things are lifted by the reduction in share counts. Did I get that directionally right? That's absolutely right. It's uh, one of the two ways, principal ways, that companies talk about returning cash to shareholders. One is to give dividends, uh, and the other is to buy back shares. People don't always think of that as giving money back to shareholders, but it is a transaction of here's money, we're getting shares, we're literally giving money back to shareholders, retiring the shares, everybody else now has a slightly bigger uh, piece of the pie. Uh, And it's a a choice that management makes, Uh, also is in the news because of uh, Google, uh, continuing to uh, buy back a lot of its own shares at the same time that it is uh, reducing headcount, laying people off, Uh, getting some criticism publicly from some of the remaining and departing uh, employees saying, you've got all this money. Why don't you just keep us around or find something for us uh, to do that's valuable for the company rather than kicking us out and buying back shares. So I think it's, it's something that uh, also attracts uh, headlines, not just from politicians, but uh, employees and, and shareholders all have an interest in, in these choices. So I'm glad you introduced this one, Bill, because it both helps us understand how the world of the stock market works and specifically how we as shareholders benefit from share buybacks, assuming that management's making a good decision, buying their stock at a good point. Presumably, they know more than we do about the status of their operations. So when companies choose to buy back shares, they feel like their stock is cheap. It looks great if they're right over the long term. But you are mentioning that some people have criticized doing this because the thought is, why are you spending money just to buy back shares and enrich your shareholders when you could have helped the world, when you could have invested more, expanded, or I don't been charitable? So I think it's fair to say, Bill, that we see both sides of this at The Motley Fool, but we tend to fall down the same side of the table with Buffett because this is just a decision that management can make and it benefits shareholders. I guess, Bill, they could have paid dividends, except that dividends are double taxed and not very efficient, which Warren Buffett has also spoken to over the years. Right. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway has never been uh, one to pay dividends because of the tax consequences, the differential there. Uh, and those that are taking shots at companies buying back shares point out this doesn't produce any more goods for society. Uh, you could take that money. Why not just pay employees more if you have so much money that you don't know what to do with it? Why don't you just hire more employees? Why don't you just try some things that might lead to something good for society? And it's those uh, attempts that sometimes end up getting companies in trouble. Uh, you know, buying back shares reduces the mistakes that you can make by allocating too much effort to too many things. But it is true that it doesn't in and of itself produce more stuff. And I'll just add that uh, Berkshire Hathaway, which is, um, you know, has Warren Buffett has spoken a lot about share buybacks and how they can add value to uh, the remaining shareholders when they're conducted at the right price. 
Um, Berkshire Hathaway has been buying back a significant amount of Berkshire stock uh, in 2020, 2021, and 2022. All right. And, you know, one of the things that Buffett does is uh, not to try to take credit for his own work. So when he talks about how much he likes share buybacks when they're conducted at the right price, he points to Apple, a major shareholding of Berkshire Hathaway, uh, which has uh, done a great job of buying mm. back its shares for a long time. And so he uses that as an example to promote the value that shareholders experience on a good buyback rather than say, look at how good we at Berkshire are at <laughs> buying our own shares. Well said, Bill. Well, for each of these terms, I've asked my talented advisor or analyst to illustrate that term in a sentence of his own design. Bill, what do you have for us to close out with share buyback? Well, I'm going to paraphrase uh, Buffett uh, because of uh, the way that uh, they have conducted theirs and say companies should engage in share buybacks only when stock is available in the market at less than the intrinsic value of the stock. Ah, very classic. All right, Bill Barker, thank you. Share buyback. Now, dear listener, to remind you of our scoring system, if you just learned a lot, you felt educated, amused, and enriched, give yourself a plus two. If you we're okay with that. Plus one. And if you don't really feel like you learned anything, zero. Score as you go. Let's move to term number two. Jason Moser, what do you have for us? Yes, two very simple words, but when they're put together, it maybe is a little bit more of a curious term, but one that I think we're all seeing these days uh, ad nauseum in the financial media. Is it ad nauseum? No, I Oh, oh, I no, got confused. Not. Sorry, my bad. We've seen this we've seen this phrase. It seems uh, every day ad nauseum. And the phrase is Debt ceiling. Uh, debt ceiling. Tell me if you've read, heard, or seen debt ceiling in the past 24 hours. My hand is up. Everybody's hand is up, of course, because we've all seen it. Um, it, it is it is in the middle in the middle of the uh, financial media these days. And uh, to give you you know an idea of what this is all about, as a country, we unfortunately have a little bit of a nasty habit of living beyond our means. Uh, right? We we tend to spend more than we bring in, and and when you do that, you run a deficit. And uh, you need to find a way to remedy that. And so when you're talking about the U.S. government, the U.S. government deals with it by issuing new debt in the form of government securities in order to help pay the bills that we can't accommodate at that point. Uh, it, the debt is like a loan. Investors trade cash for a promise that the government will ultimately pay them back most of the time with interest. Uh, so I like to think of this from a personal finance perspective. It's like a credit card, right? There's a limit or a ceiling on what you can borrow with your credit mm. card. We kind of have the same thing going here. When someone spends more than they make, how do they deal with it? Well, oftentimes they use a credit card and they kind of run that bill up. Eventually they hit that ceiling and they don't have any more uh, room left on the credit card. And so you either reach out to the bank and ask them to extend your limit Oftentimes, the bank says no, <laughs> because you, you seem to be a little bit more of a risk these days. Uh, sometimes, they'll, they'll let it go. But either way, it's not very good long-term behavior and not sound personal finance. And so, we are, of course, in a situation now where we're seeing uh, that we are running up on the, the debt limit that we as a, a nation can borrow. You mean the debt ceiling? The debt ceiling. Jason? Exactly. We're hitting the ceiling. Uh, and so there is a time limit here. They're trying to, I think, by somewhere at the beginning of June, come to a resolution um, as to what exactly to do. Now, I think it's worth noting uh, this debt ceiling dates back, I think, all the way to 1917. This is not a new concept. It's something that's been around for a while. And I, I believe that we've never voluntarily, as a country, we've never defaulted on our debt. 
And furthermore, it's obviously a political football, back and forth from one party to the next. And every party blames the other party because one party's not doing it right. The other party's the party of virtue, yada, yada, yada. If you look at the U.S. Treasury, the Department of Treasury website, just going back to 1960, Congress has acted 78 separate times wow. to permanently raise, temporarily extend, or revise the definition of the debt limit. 49 times under Republican presidents and 29 times under Democratic presidents. This is something that crosses party lines. Uh, it is not something that will go away after uh, we, we deal with it this time around either. There, we're sure to see this in the news again at some point, but it's certainly something we're seeing a lot these days. Uh, and and that, that is it in a nutshell. Thank you, Jason. Very timely. Uh, you're right. We all had our hands up. We've heard that phrase used. Not just this week, although yes, but older hands have heard that used many times in the course of the last few decades. Ever since Bill Barker went to asset management, I think I've heard it at least 100 times probably over 14 years or so. It's a very relevant term, and yet it's, it's kind of complicated for a lot of us. It's not really clear what the ceiling number is, and it's, an, it's a huge number. So for a lot of us, it's hard to even conceive of what that number means. It makes me wonder, Jason, what's going to be your more advanced term a little bit later? Because <laughs> you started us at kind of a high bar. So does anybody here remember being in New York City and seeing the national debt clock? I, I do. I, I assume it's still humming. I think it's no longer there, yeah. I believe, but it is online. It was a digital readout, like yeah. a scoreboard. And it was there in New York City, in Manhattan, and it was just constantly showing how the national debt is running up. Uh, but you don't have to go all the way to Manhattan anymore to be terrified by the size of the debt. Uh, and this is not a, a, a comment on uh, any uh, political choices. It's just a very large number, which goes up all the time. And if you go to usdebtclock.org, all right. uh, it is... And Bill is facing his laptop out to the rest of us, and I do see... It's around thirty-one trillion dollars, I think. Yeah, and, and it's, uh, it's going up. It's yeah, you can't you can't even see how fast it's going up. It's one of those <laughs> things like if you're pumping gas and you're trying to watch that like last digit. No, it's it's it's. Uh, well, the good terrifying. news is we've somehow managed to work with this and grow into it and through it for a, a century or so. We keep increasing our GDP, but it is a little bit astonishing, Bill. We're not the only country that does this, by the way. It's often how governments kind of work. And I guess the good news is for so many of our Motley Fools that we've gotten to work with over time, I hope we've taught you to save more than you spend. And at a national level, that doesn't really happen in most nations these days. But at an individual level, it makes all the difference for your financial freedom. I think the difference between us as individuals and the United States government is that we can't create money out of thin air. <laughs> I think that's an important distinction, Tom, and I'm yes, glad I, you pointed that out. I'd, I'd be more than happy to <laughs> treasuries, right? I mean, uh, but yeah, I, I think, you know, when, when you start thinking about this debt ceiling, the, the, the next question really is, because we hear it so much from our perspective, is how or does it even matter for the everyday investor? I mean, as an investor, why should I care about this? Does Is this something that will impact me? Um, bigger picture, I, I would say no, but I think to look at it and say that nothing would come of it if if we were to default on the debt, I think would be a little bit short-sighted as well. I mean, you're talking about something where the, the U.S. dollar being the world's reserve currency, I mean, there would be a crisis of confidence. There's no question about that. You would, you would have to expect 
a certain level of volatility in in the stock market, right? Credit markets would be disrupted. I, I agree. See interest rates. I mean, there would be a lot of uncertainty there in the near term, and it is something something worth keeping in mind. Thank you for that, Jason. And that causes me to ask you: Would you like to use debt ceiling in a sentence? Certainly. In my opinion, voluntarily defaulting on the country's debt by failing to come to an agreement regarding the debt ceiling would leave a massive black mark on the current state of our political system. All right. Thank you very much, Jason Moser. Turn number two, debt ceiling. So, we started the share buyback. We went to debt ceiling. Tom King, you're up next. Simple term number three. By the way, as Tom gets ready, give yourself a plus two if you learned a lot from Jason there. Give yourself a plus one if you you learned a little bit. Give us, give yourself or us a zero if you already knew all that. Tom, what do you got for us? Term number three. So Jason spoke about the uh, the uh, debt ceiling. I'm going to talk about a similar term uh, called, which is leverage. Leverage as a noun is a synonym for debt or borrowed money. It can also be a verb used as in a sense like to leverage, which is the use of borrowed money to increase the return on. Uh, invested equity. Yeah, and Tom, when I think about leverage or it as a verb, I just think about a lever. I just think about pushing down on like one side of the seesaw and the other side pops it up because you're you're levering it and people do that with their finances. Exactly. It's a it's a very um uh, it's a word that you can you can visualize the meaning of it very usefully. So the same way you would use a lever to lift up something heavy in the world of finance, investors use leverage or borrowed money to lift their return on equity, which is the money that shareholders put into a business venture. And Tom, I think about this in really two different ways. One is that people do this by getting a mortgage, let's say. They're they're borrowing and they are, in a, in a way, levering themselves up. But the reason that I think a lot of us do that is because there are lower interest rates for an asset that will gain value over time. And this is a time-tested way, I think, of earning financial freedom eventually. So, there can be good leverage. Well, we certainly, Tom, can think of companies that do this with their balance sheets. But I think you're really focusing us right now on individuals, you and me as investors, and what we can do with leverage. Yes. it's. I mean, we all essentially use leverage when we, when we when we have a when we have a mortgage to buy a house, so if you can imagine, like, so how I spoke about how leverage increases the return on equity, so let's imagine that there's a house that uh, that you buy for two hundred thousand dollars, and you buy that house with all of your own cash. You don't you don't borrow any money at all, and let's say that that house increases in value to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and you sell it. So your profit in this transaction is fifty thousand dollars. So your return on equity in this scenario is the profit you made, $50,000, divided by the amount of equity that you put into the property, $200,000. $50,000 divided by $200,000 is 25%. Now let's imagine the same scenario, but in this case, you use some borrowed money. So it's the same $200,000 house, but you use $150,000 in borrowed money Mm -hmm. and $50,000 of your own money, the equity portion the house increases in value to $250,000 again, and you sell it. You repay the $150,000 loan, and you're left with $100,000. So your profit in that scenario was $50,000, but your equity that you invested was only $50,000. So your profit divided by your equity is $50,000 divided by $50,000, which is 100%. So you can see how the value of the house was exactly the same in both scenarios. It went from 200000 to 250000 But because in scenario two, 
you used leverage, you increased the return on equity that you earned. Very well illustrated. And I don't even think you've gotten to your sentence yet, Tom, although you gave us a very illustrative example. Now, Jason and Bill, in Tom's example, the house went up in value over the course of time. And so, it felt great. You got a 100% return by using leverage. Have you guys ever seen situations where things don't go up in value and they're levered? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot of uh, investors have made the mistake of watching stocks go up and up and up in a short period of time. They've used margin, which is the term used for borrowing money uh, against your stocks. And then when the stock uh, doesn't go up and goes down, as can happen, uh, they're out the money that they borrowed and the amount that they've lost uh, in between the, the buy and the sell. So, it's uh, houses have a very good history, not a perfect history as we learned in 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm of going up over time in in this country. Uh, stocks have a good history of going up over time, but on an individual basis, uh, a lot of them uh, don't go up uh, in the amount of time that you need them to do so if you're borrowing heavily. Well, thank you for that example, Bill. And Tom, you told me in our cafeteria before coming on the show, you were reading the Enron story. And uh, that's an example maybe of a company not really using leverage effectively. What, 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 which is the Enron book you're reading right now? It's uh, The Smartest Guys in the Room. You know, I've definitely heard that. I've never felt that motivated to read it because it just feels like it's going to be a bad ending. I like books with happy endings. Tom, are you enjoying the book? It's very good. It, it, it makes you kind of sad about you know, the greed that people can descend to in certain circumstances. And that's often what happens with margin loans, as Bill was speaking to. Uh, our personal greed gets in the way of our better judgment, and we end up levering owning stocks that we shouldn't have and taking a bath. Tom King, do you have a sentence that you'd like to use leverage in as we move to halftime of this podcast? Yeah, so um, uh, before, I, before I say my sentence, I'll just say that, you know, one thing to keep in mind with leverage is that shareholders uh, always eat last, but they eat what's left. So, uh, debt is great when asset prices are going up, it can work out really well. But when asset prices are going down, the asset prices that that, the, that, that debt is linked to, when, that, when those asset prices go down, uh, um, shareholders can wind up in a lot of trouble. So, my sentence is, Company Y went bankrupt because it was too leveraged and was unable to pay its debt when it came due. And we'll just call Company Y Enron. Enron, yeah, it's a good example. All right, and others too. All right, thank you, gentlemen. That was the simple round. We're about to go back to Bill to start with our more advanced round. But before we do, don't forget our scoring system. Zero if you learned nothing. Two if you learned a lot. One if you're somewhere in the middle. If you've really learned a lot so far this week, we hope you have, you're at a six. If you already knew all this, you're at zero. We hope to get you higher here as we move to our advanced terms. Bill Barker, what do you got for us? Term number four. Okay. Well, I was linking the uh, more complicated term that I chose with the simpler one. And Great. Uh, it's capital allocation. Capital allocation. So, I'll give you a sentence uh, to define it. Uh, capital. This is from Investopedia. I want to, you know. Shout out it. to our friends at Investopedia. Capital allocation is about where and how a corporation's chief executive officer, CEO, decides to spend the money that the company has earned. 
Capital allocation means distributing and investing a company's financial resources in ways that will increase its efficiency and maximize its profits. So, capital allocation is what you do with the money that you have. Uh, it's kind of a complicated term for a fairly simple action, although it's not always simple to decide what you should do as you allocate capital, Bill. No, and this would be in the news. Um, SVB uh, is a company that was tasked with having a lot of deposits, and it had to allocate the capital that it was in charge of and invested in a way that made sense. And the way that it chose uh, to buy a lot of long-term treasuries uh, to match those those deposits ended up being a terrible capital allocation, the way things played out, and it's gone. And Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, there are a couple of other banks that have gotten in the news for Notice that. similar uh, actions. And uh, th- that's sort of uh, the, the, the tragic side. Most of the time, capital allocation decisions do not end up blowing up a company that quickly. Uh, and uh, most of the time, uh, CEOs do a better job, uh, not necessarily maximizing uh, the profits for a company, but that's the intent in the selection of choices that they have. Uh, and that the classic ones are mergers and acquisitions. That's a way to allocate capital, buy another company, merge with another company, uh, put it toward uh, research and development, uh, buybacks, which we talked about before. Yes. Uh, dividends, uh, and capital uh, expenditures, buying, constructing a new factory, buying more laptops for your employees, uh, hiring more people. Uh, so those are basically the, the choices that a CEO is, is faced with. And uh, you know where you make the most profit is something that is moving around all the time, depending on the opportunities that are available. There are times when a, a merger and acquisition is a great profit maker for shareholders. There's times when it's a, a destroyer. And the same with share buybacks. Uh, dividends are something when you've got excess cash uh, is an easy and simple way to return to shareholders. But there are times when you have to cut back on your dividend uh, to, to hoard some resources that you need for a rainy day. So. Uh, it's the most important job that a CEO has, and it's one that, unfortunately, a lot of CEOs are not prepared for because they ascend to the job not by being great capital allocators, hmm. but by being great salesmen uh, or great marketers, uh, great coders. Uh, and it's the marriage of being great at one of these other things uh, and then Becoming a good capital allocator that creates the real, you know, wealth to, to shareholders. Warren Buffett's really not somebody who was a phenomenal uh, businessman at creating products on his own, uh, but he's always pointed out that his skill is in capital allocation, and that that is with a lot of capital. You can make a lot of money for people by exercising that skill. You did a beautiful job laying out the choices, the menu of choices that the person leading a for-profit enterprise has, Bill. And I really appreciate that you pointed out that there's no one-size-fits-all obvious thing to do. Really, contextually, how you allocate capital 
Uh, you can't just read a textbook of what another company did and try to copy that because at all times different things are being asked of a business's cash flow. There might be new competition or some new opportunity to expand. Their stock might be low. Or they may have thought it was low, and they allocate to share buybacks, but it was high, and so that was capital destroyed. So, like a lot of things in life, it's going to be hard to go with a one-size-fits-all approach. But if you're aware of what the tools are in front of you, and you start learning when to pick up the screwdriver, and then when to pick up the hammer, that's how I think in one way of capital allocation. It's sort of the tools of your toolbox laid out in front of you, and it's knowing. Which one to pick up at the right moment that leads to greatness or stock market tragedy?、Uh, or you can even think of individuals who have experienced both. Somebody like Steve Jobs, who、uh, was allocating capital at App- Apple in round one to disappointment from shareholders and his board. And when he came back, he hit it out of the park、uh, several times and.、Uh, You know, he was really somebody who was great at designing products,、mm-hmm. and rather than you know squeezing a few more dollars out of a share buyback or、uh, you know things like that. So I mean, in the, the research and development, he was he was excellent, excellent certainly at、uh, capital allocation. Bill, you've had minutes since I kind of told you about this just before the show, not hours, to plan your sentence. Do you have a sentence for us to illustrate your advanced term, capital allocation? Yeah, I'm going to、uh, reference my previous term and reference nice、um, integration all breakfast commercials、uh, from the 1970s, <laughs> and that is by saying that share buybacks are an important part of a completely nutritious capital allocation <laughs> breakfast. Very well done. You know, I think back to those 1970s cereals and. A lot of them, and I ate them all, were not very healthy at all. No, but if you surrounded them with enough other nutritious things, they were <laughs> a part of a nutritious experience. I mean, for me, sugar smacks were like one of the healthier forms of breakfast cereal I had. Maybe because I had it surrounded by I don't know sugar, blueberries. Sugar smacks had eight, maybe nine essential vitamins <laughs> and minerals. You got to figure, while、well, four out of five dentists probably wouldn't recommend them, one out of five would. <laughs> Right. Where was that other that other dentist from? I mean, how are you going to get your thiamine、uh, by any other source? Very well said. You know, maybe that's a term you want to bring back next time. All right, let's go on to term number five again. Give us a two. If Bill taught you something there, and you were reminded of the eternal verities or inspired, maybe you got emotional at one point as Bill was talking specifically about 1970s breakfast cereals. Jason Moser, move us on. Term number five. Yes, dollar-based net retention.、Uh, this is something you also hear referred to as net dollar retention,、um, but ultimately, this is a metric、uh, that we can measure.、Uh, oftentimes, subscription businesses, these SaaS businesses, right, subscription or software as a subscription or as a service, rather. Yep.、Um, it's something at the core. It measures the amount of revenue that you're ke- that you're keeping from your existing customer base, and that you're also expanding. Within that existing customer base. So, Jason, dollar-based net retention.、Uh, again, some of our listeners totally know this phrase, but many coming across this for the first time want this broken down a little bit. So, 
Talk about the retention part of that. Well, so to give you a couple of quick ideas here as to why it matters and, and how it works, number one, higher is better. Uh, it's, it's a number that you're often going to see expressed as a percentage. Um, and like I said, higher is better. But but again, when we look at subscription businesses and, and a lot of these a lot of these software businesses that really uh, that are subscription businesses, you want to know that not only are they retaining those customers, but that they're expanding the relationship with those mm. customers. Uh, if you see where companies are not retaining and expanding, well, then their financial performance will suffer over longer periods of time. And ultimately, that dollar-based net retention metric helps tell us uh, whether companies are doing a good job of, of keeping their customers or not. Why, why wouldn't we just say net retention? Why do we have to go with the dollar-based and extend this whole thing? Is, isn't everything dollar-based? <laughs> it does feel like it is. And that's why I think you also see uh, it referred to as just net dollar retention. It's a funny world we live in where uh, there always seems to be another way to say something fairly simply. But uh, I think it's also a, a metric you often hear to it referred to in some cases as Dubner. Right. Um, and, you know, when we were talking about this uh, before coming up with our ideas uh, of what to talk about here, one of the metrics that came to my mind, I almost pulled out here, but I wanted to ask around the table here. Anybody here know the metric BOPUS? I, I feel like I know I'm, Bob I'm kiss. immediately skeptical of what that will be. B, B, I, I do know what it is. I yes. thought you might. B O P I S, BOPUS. It is a real metric. I've seen it referred to in earnings calls as such. And in today's omnichannel retail world, mm. buy online, pick up in-store, bopus. So there's a bonus for you. <laughs> I have found that many companies seem to introduce terms just so they don't have to talk about profits because they don't want to, have to talk about when they will earn a profit. <laughs> I'm not sure that I've ever actually bought online to pick up in-store. You know, I have not bought online to pick up in store myself, but I have run the errand to go pick up that store from something that my wife bought online. Well, but how about food? I mean, Bill, I, I, I'm buying online and then picking up at, I don't know, Cava? I stand corrected. Okay. I just did Chipotle? that Chipotle the other night. That's true. Now, That's Chipotle, true. last I saw, and they had excellent earnings a week or so ago, hitting an all-time high, by the way, and a lot of us kind of just think of Chipotle as always having been there and having had some hard times five years ago or so. Maybe kind of forgot about the company or the stock, understandably. COVID. Chipotle, all-time high this past month. So that's kind of... But I didn't see Bopis in their press release. I, I've only seen it uh, for uh, non-food uh, items. Uh, in, uh, for some like, reason, I hmm. want to say it was Lowe's. It was a it was a Lowe's tractor supply. I, I mean, Bopus doesn't sound appetizing. I, if you're a food company, I don't think you want to say that word. It doesn't. It doesn't roll off the tongue. It Bopus. I mean, it's it's awkward. It's awkward. It's it's just another acronym. Dollar based net return Dubner. It's a lot easier, <laughs> right? I mean. And so, Jason, putting numbers to this, um, a good number for dollar-based net retention is in excess of 100%. Yeah, and, and to give you a sort of a simplified way of calculating it, let's look at a company at what we'll call the base year, right? We're looking at a certain customer, but the customer base that it has for this base year. And, and maybe that, that, re that the recurring revenue of that customer base for that base year is $250,000. And then you look at that same customer base from a year ago, right? We're not talking about new customers, just talking about mm -hmm. existing. And maybe you look at that, that existing customer base from a year ago, and they were responsible for just $200,000. So $250,000 in the new year, $200,000 in the previous mm -hmm. year. 
you divide the 250,000 by the 200,000 and you get 1.25. You put that out to a percentage and it's 125%. Which is a very good dollar-based net retention rate. That's a tremendous retention rate because it tells you, number one, that you're retaining your customers, but also further that you're expanding your relationship with those customers. And that really is the ultimate goal. Jason, some of the highest uh, dollar-based net retention rate I've ever seen, I think, was CrowdStrike, which is in about 145% at one point. It's a bit down now. I think it's sort of in the, only in the 120s, but at one point it was in the 140s. I'd say speaks to, number one, the quality of offering the company has, and then also, I think, to the market that it serves in cybersecurity, very resilient, something that's necessary and very difficult to switch from, right? I mean, kind of once you get in that universe, it's, it's not something you just sort of switch around year after year. Yeah, it, it is obviously a phrase that particularly came to the fore with software as a service. You mentioned earlier, SaaS companies and the huge moves and gains peaking in kind of spring of 2021. A lot of those companies, despite still having good dollar-based net retention rates well down as stocks, some of them Motley Fool picks, certainly. Uh, some of them in my portfolio may be yours, too, dear listeners. So, um, a lot of us got to know this. Uh, I guess the bad news is a lot of those stocks are down. The good news is if it's over 100% for companies whose stocks may have been cut in half or so, it's probably worth looking at maybe adding to positions where you see a high dollar-based net retention and a stock that's well lower. Now, you have to look at multiples and other things. There's no one-size-fits-all, as we talked about earlier. Jason, do you have a, a sentence that you'd like to... It's going to be kind of an unwieldy term for a <laughs> sentence, but where you'd like to include dollar-based net retention? Sure thing. Uh, over longer stretches of time, a dollar-based net retention rate better than 100% can be a good sign that a company is giving its customers what they want and then some. Straight up, right down the middle. Thank you, Jason Moser. That's five of our six terms. Again, quick review. Share buybacks, debt ceiling, leverage, and then capital allocation, dollar-based net retention rate. And Tom King, you have for us the sixth and final term this week. Uh, yes, my term is uh, return on incremental invested capital. Return on incremental invested capital. I, I would say that we are going to the 101 level at the academic level with some of our more advanced terms. This is a mouthful, Tom. Return on incremental invested capital. Give us more. So, return on incremental invested capital is the profit that a business earned on the most recent dollar invested. So, just to help you sort of um, visualize this concept, imagine that you live in a town where there are 100 people and you're an ice cream salesman and you're the only ice cream salesman. The first 10 ice creams you sell, you're going to be able to charge pretty much any price for and you're going to earn a high profit on them. But as you sell more and more ice creams, the price that you're able to charge is going to decline and so is your profit. And when you say the price is going to decline, why is that, Tom? Why is the price going to decline? Because we can only eat so much ice cream. <laughs> sick. I don't know. Are you sure about that? <laughs> <laughs> You're not fully an American, are you? <laughs> so, Tom, the price, as we sell more of many goods and services, the price might decline. Yes. So, the price declines, and in this scenario, just making some other assumptions, so does... Stick with ice cream. So does the profit in your, okay. in your ice cream. Okay. So your return on your incremental invested capital, if you reinvest in business in money back into your ice cream business every period, 
and each period you sell in more and more ice cream where you earn less and less profit per ice cream, your return on incremental invested capital is declining over time because we're reaching a point where people just aren't only willing to pay so much for an ice cream. So the reason this is important to understand is that some of the best businesses in the world serve markets and where there's no competition or very little competition, where they're able to continually earn a higher return on invested mm. capital. So each period where they go through, let's say, a year of business and they've invested $100 and they've earned $10 in profit, at the end of that year, they can take that $10 in profit and reinvest it back into the business and continue to earn that same 10% that they earned in the first year or possibly even better and to keep doing that for many, many years. And the longer they can do that, the better the business is. Well, I'm tempted, Tom, to ask you for an example because as a stock analyst here at The Fool, this is the sort of thing that you think about before we want to go stronger with more conviction toward a company or back away slowly. Tom, are you ready to use return on incremental invested capital in a sentence? I am. Here goes. Despite being in business for 23 years, Fortinet's return on incremental invested capital continues to be high. All right. And I'm glad you mentioned Fortinet, ticker symbol FTNT on the NASDAQ, because that is, well, at least for me, it's a former stock pick of mine. It remains an active, I hope, Motley Fool holding. It's just that since I'm not picking stocks directly anymore, I'm never quite sure whether we're still holding it or not. I like Fortinet. Tom, sounds like you like Fortinet, given the sentence you just threw down. Yes, Fortinet is a great company, also in the cybersecurity space, just like CrowdStrike. Um, just a wonderful company and um, high insider ownership, great returns on invested capital, and great uh, profit margins as well. Is this an easy figure to tease out of corporate financial statements? Do you need CEOs to call it out in press releases or conversations? Is this a regular thing that you'd apply to every stock you're looking at? I do my best to apply it whenever I can, but it is not an easy figure to calculate. There are a lot of uh, accounting things that aren't quite economically relevant that you might need to back out in order to calculate this figure. So, you're going to be using your judgment. Of course, these are the advanced terms. So, for people who are dead serious about stock market investing and analyzing companies, you're going to often have to create your own proxies or a sense of exactly how much businesses are not just charging, but ultimately profiting from the increased sale of their products and services. There are different ways to account for these things that can obfuscate. Yes, that's true. All right, and that about wraps up this most recent edition, the first in five years for Gotta Know the Lingo here on Rule Breaker Investing. Volume four, here were our six terms. And again, if you loved it and learned, give yourself a two for each of them, a perfect score 12. If you didn't feel that way, one or zero. And I'd love to hear your scores, whether you put them out on social media or let us know directly. We're trying to be as relevant and helpful as possible. And I really enjoy breaking down terms, because underneath those terms are concepts, and underneath those concepts, friends, are dollars. Dollar, dollar bill, y'all, because understanding how financial statements work, how businesses work, is right there often in the phrases that many people don't understand well enough. But as we go and grow as investors, we increasingly can start piecing together the world and, I don't know, maybe one day get close to Warren Buffett. Not net worth, but understanding. All right, so our six terms, share buyback, debt ceiling, and leverage, followed by capital allocation, dollar-based net retention rate, 
and return on incremental invested capital. Before I let you guys go, how about an appreciation or thought, not about one of the terms that you brought to the table, each of you brought two, but maybe the other four that you heard. I'm going to turn to you first, Tom King. The four that Bill and Jason collectively brought, what jumps out to you? I think uh, Bill's uh, point about capital allocation and how anybody in the C-suite of a company needs to be a good capital allocator is is so important. Um, and he was rightly pointed out that the skills that people get that get people into the C-suite are not necessarily capital allocation; it's something else. Yet now they have this responsibility for allocating the capital of a massive, potentially a massive company, and that will have a huge impact on the future value of that company. And that's the reason why here at The Motley Fool, we spend so much time, or we like companies that have such that have high insider ownership and high founder ownership, mm. because it's an, sort of an, a rule of thumb. It's a quick way to tell whether there is good capital allocation at this business or not, because they're investing their own money. Um, whereas some other businesses that don't have high insider ownership, you need to be a little bit you need to dig a little bit deeper to figure out whether they are going to be allocating money correctly. Very well said, Tom King, and great points, Bill. Jason, what jumps out to you about what the other guys said? Yeah, you know, Tom's discussion of leverage, the picture you painted of a seesaw, what's that in the middle of the seesaw? Is that the fulcrum? Yeah, that's the fulcrum. Let's go with that. I just sure. need to make sure. That's, that's sure. not my point there. I just, I couldn't get that out of my head. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually, you know, in thinking of Bill's, Bill's discussion on share buybacks, um, I, I really appreciated the examples uh a bad one in Bed Bath and Beyond versus good ones. You know, it's it's something that politicians really like to glom on and and sort of paint a picture of them being always bad. They're not always bad. Sometimes they're not good, but not all share buybacks are created equal. Some are good. It, they it, can it, be heroic, Jason, right? If you step in and you're willing to risk your own company's capital buying back shares saying our stock is cheap, that's helping all of the shareholders. Ultimately, it's helping the business. Assuming they're making the right call. That's absolutely right. And so, I mean, you know, over longer periods of time, something we look at as analysts, just make sure that share count is coming down. That's a good sign that at least they're doing what they were meant to do, uh, because it's not always the case that that, that that share count is coming down. Bill Barker, what jumped out to you about what the other guys brought? Well, Jason just mentioned the seesaw, and that reminded me about watching the Westminster Dog Show last night <laughs> and the obstacle course, and I, I highly recommend that you go. And I see missed this, although I've seen the videos in past years. I mean, they're, they're just great if you like dogs. You know, it's, it's a great <laughs> night. Especially great like little stubby dogs that I are having to make... When you get to the top of the seesaw <laughs> and it's unclear whether they've got to get their weight so that it pushes it down and they can complete it. It's That's great. leverage. Good stuff. Uh, no, I enjoyed uh, Tom's mention of the return on incremental invested capital. That, of course, is kind of the crux of the Berkshire Hathaway thesis. Everybody, all these various uh, companies uh, that are operating under the Berkshire uh, umbrella kick their profits up to Buffett and Munger, and then they determine where the money goes to expand things. And so you don't have uh, the pressures at the lower level of just trying to constantly grow your business. Uh, you're going to be given the capital to grow it if you have the opportunity to outperform the other choices that this master capital allocator, uh, uh, Munger and, and Buffett, the team of them um, choose. So uh, it's that incremental uh, dollar that they're constantly uh, reevaluating, and you know the results speak for themselves. There. 
Very well said. Well, we hope your results, dear listeners, spoke for themselves, whether it was a zero, one, or two for each of our terms. We had a lot of fun bringing that to you this week. Thank you again to Bill Barker, Jason Moser, and Tom King. And a reminder, next week is, it's my most self-indulgent podcast of each year because it's my birthday week. What have you learned from me? Yep, it'll be the latest edition, the 2023 edition of What Have You Learned from David Gardner. It's always fun to kind of summarize the cardinal points or things that you've heard from me and just share them back. So I take your gifts in the form of emails, rbi at fool.com, and then I share them back out as a summary of some of the most important takeaways that I can give you in investing and business and life. So again, rbi at fool.com. You can tweet us at rbi podcast. In the meantime, have a foolish week. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.